All right. Good morning, Calvary Church. It is great uh, to be here with you. My name is Eric Wakeling. If we haven't met yet, I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Calvary and just excited to be able to share God's Word with you today on this week before Christmas Day. And uh, I'm a person that gets excited about Christmas. I love Christmas. I love, obviously, that it's about Jesus, but I actually love all of the other stuff, too. I love the traditions, the food, the singing, the decorations. I love the lights. I love the lights a lot. In fact, I've gotten a little bit carried away over these past few years with the lights at my house. And uh, you'll even see here, coming up, is a picture of my house. Uh, and I got a major award. <laughs> uh, so I was very excited about all this. And I think I have a point, or I'm just trying to brag here in church, when I've got a big old captivated audience. But uh, no, but I was just excited about all of that. And, and with that, though, it's, uh, it's just fun. And it's fun, and you can even see a little bit of where... Uh, the way I've got it set up in the picture, I was kind of more focused on the major award than the, than the lights, you know, at this point. Um, which I should also say, Paul Rakovich, other member of Calvary Church, also won one of these major awards of Tustin. So, hey, it's kind of cool. We're both a little crazy in our own ways and put up too many lights. And, but the way I've got it set up is you have the manger scene and then all of everything else is kind of all the lights and the trees are this backdrop to what is the heart of it all. And, and as much as I love all of the decorations, I do, I promise, I get it, that the point is Jesus, okay? <laughs> and, uh, I, I really do. And, and, but all of that fun stuff is this amazing backdrop. And it's, it's pretty great, I think, that as we celebrate Christ, there's all of this other stuff, too, that it makes it this major celebration of who Jesus is. But again, all of that is the backdrop. And the real, like when you think about the backdrop to this big story, I encourage you to grab your bulletins and look at the outline if you haven't yet. But the backdrop to the story is this famous passage of Scripture in Luke 2. We'll be Luke 1 and 2 today if you want to open your Bibles there. You can. We'll just be hanging out in there a little bit and talking about some of the, the, the backdrop of it all, actually. But Luke 2, I mean, it's this passage, if you go to a Christmas program or you watch a TV special, you know, Charlie Brown and all of that, you will hear Luke 2 in a Christmas service at a church. Luke 2 is this incredible passage where it starts with these words. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. That's the, the backdrop of the Christmas story. The backdrop of the Christmas story is Luke 2, 1. It's not just the shepherds and camels and magi and, you know, it's not uh, just King Herod. It's not even the the world of, like the religious world of Pharisees and Sadducees and all of that that was taking place in Israel, the backdrop of the Christmas story is the Roman Empire. The rule and power and dominance of the Roman Empire over the world. And so we're going to look at today, specifically with that, Caesar Augustus. Uh, born Gaius Octavius, sometimes referred to as Octavian, depending on what language you're using. But today we are seeing how it is Jesus over Caesar. 
And I don't know if you've really noticed with these awesome stained glass uh, decorations that we have up here, but the first one over there where we have Jesus, that represents Jesus over Satan. If you remember the first week of the series. This one right here represents Jesus over history, which was last week. And then now over here is Jesus over Caesar with this throne representing Christ, this little baby, right, in a feeding trough over the king of what they thought was all of the inhabited earth, which we kind of know that wasn't really all of the inhabited earth, but it was, it was a lot of it. And so, uh, but where you have Jesus over Caesar represented here, and that's what we want to look at today, and that's why I brought the little bust of uh, Caesar himself. And so we'll be, we'll be chatting with this guy here a bit, but... Uh, <laughs> We have to recognize, like, we have to see that there is a gospel being preached of Caesar in the first century and just before it even. That we have to choose the true gospel. Is it the gospel of Caesar or the gospel of Jesus? So we're looking a bit into that, and when we think about this backdrop, we have to recognize, okay, what was going on with this whole, this whole guy Caesar Augustus in the first century that is talked about by Luke right there at the beginning of the story of telling how Jesus, the Messiah, was born. So you've got this whole world, right, where you have uh, Julius Caesar was the Caesar before Augustus, okay? So he is reigning and ruling, and he adopts this guy, Octavian. Okay, so he adopts Octavian to be his son. And Octavian, uh, oh, and then you've got this whole thing, right? Julius Caesar, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but Julius Caesar and the Senate, and then he's killed. And then you've got war happening. And you've got Octavian versus Mark Antony. And all these movies are made about it, right? Where you've got these, these great stories of these battles taking place, and Rome is at war, and there's tons of conflict. And then you have at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, where Octavian defeats Mark Antony and brings peace to the Roman Empire, okay? And as he brings this peace, then he now takes on the throne and takes on the name Caesar Augustus. Augustus means the illustrious one. Now, uh, what happened was then, Caesar Augustus then puts on these elaborate public games, right? Gladiatorial games and other games, and he puts on this big spectacle. And during these games, a comet comes overhead, And this is a real historical thing, that this comet comes overhead. And they think, though, then, (laughs) this is not real, but they they think this. They think that that comet is Julius Caesar, who had died. So Julius Caesar, they believe, is now a god. They, They believe it's a symbol that he is a god. He's in the stars amongst the other gods that they would worship, those astrological gods and all of that, right? So they believe that Julius Caesar is a god now. And then what does that make Caesar Augustus, the son of Julius Caesar? That makes him the son of God. And he is divine. He is a god himself. They believed and he believed about himself. And they would even inscribe on coins. It says, uh, has a picture of Caesar Augustus. And then it would say, son of the deified one on the coin. 
Okay, so he believed himself to be a god. And this whole thing of emperor worship or emperor uh, divinity, it became a thing. Like, it became a thing for, for the rest of that century and beyond that they believed that they were gods themselves. And uh, it's not just the backdrop of the Christmas story. It's really the backdrop, and it, not even of just all of Christ's life, but also of the whole early church and the church going on through the end of the first century and beyond, that they're all under this shadow of an emperor that believes he is a god. Now, some of the, the names and titles of uh, Caesar Augustus were these. This is pretty like crazy when you start to just think about this, okay? He was known as the bringer of peace, savior, lord. His birth was called good news and was celebrated by a 12-day holiday. Other titles of his included Cosmic Savior, so not just earthly Savior, but Cosmic Savior, uh, Atonement for Rome's Past Sins, whoa, right, it's getting worse, and then Inaugurator of the Golden Age of Peace and Security, the Pax Romana, right? And there's a couple quotes even that I can read you from inscriptions. Uh, This one dated 9 BC. I won't read a lot of it, just a couple lines. It says, uh, this is about Caesar Augustus. It says, the most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. Uh, And then it says, and finally, the birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news concerning him. Good news. It's the same word there as gospel. Okay? That this is the gospel of Caesar. There is another uh, uh, oath that they had to take. That they found an inscription. They found this in the region of Galatia. This is modern day Turkey, kind of central Turkey. And it says this. At the command of Caesar Augustus, the Son of God, I swear by Zeus, the earth, the sun, and by all the gods and goddesses, including Augustus himself, to be favorable to Caesar Augustus, his sons and descendants forever, in speech, in actions, and in thoughts, considering his friends those he considers so, and regarding his enemies those he judges so, and to defend their interests I will spare neither body, nor soul, nor life, nor my children." So you have all of these words that are probably familiar words and titles to you that you've heard, but are spoken about a, a Caesar Augustus. And so this, I think Luke says this on purpose, everybody, okay? He writes in Luke 2, 1, in those days a decree went out. He didn't have to say from Caesar Augustus, but he does. And he proclaims this so that we will see and recognize the backdrop of what is happening in this story. That we are talking about a world where a man who claims that he is God and is the most powerful man in the world and brings peace By the sword, if you don't obey, you will be killed. And so this person that brings all of this, and then we see how then God chooses to describe himself to the world, right? God chooses, God, the real God, Yahweh God, chooses to describe Jesus in these words. So if you flip back to Luke 1, 26, I want us to read here, okay? And then start to to see all of this kind of coming together a bit, okay? It says, now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin 
engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, which we should recognize means Savior, okay? Uh, Then we go on, verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. These are big words of a little baby being born in a feeding trough, okay? Like, these are huge words when you're thinking of under the shadow of the Roman Empire and under Caesar Augustus who claims that he is God, that he is Lord, that he is the one who reigns over all of the inhabited earth. Mary then says to the angel, verse 34, How can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So these words being spoken about who Jesus is and and will be as he is born. And then you go into that, Luke 2. Now in those days, a decree goes out from Caesar Augustus, this guy that thinks he's the son of God and thinks he's the savior and thinks all these about himself. But if we look down to verse 10, okay, Luke 2, 10, after he's already been born, the shepherds are hanging out in their fields innocently, not thinking anything's supposed to be happening. And all of a sudden, a bunch of angels are around them. And the angel says, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Familiar words to us about Jesus would have been familiar words maybe to them, or maybe not these shepherds, I don't know, but to the Roman Empire about Caesar. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ, the Messiah, The one that's going to come and deliver you, okay? And he is Christ the Lord. Uh, And then it goes on, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And so it's wild, right? You've got all these titles of Caesar that now God is saying, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh, you don't get those titles. You are not the bringer of peace. Peace comes for whom I am pleased with. I'm the Savior. I'm the Lord. I'm the Deliverer. This is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the good news, the gospel. And he is the only true God. And so these people are confronted with a choice. 
They're confronted with the demand for a choice. You can't possibly have a world where you agree that Caesar, you know, Caesar can have all of those titles be true about him, and Jesus can have all of those titles be true about him. You have to choose. Now, you have to remember it was a world where they didn't have to choose. They just took all the gods, right? All the gods are good. All these, the Greek, Roman gods will just take another one. You know, no big deal. So when they added emperor worship, it was, he would say, I'm just another one of these. Whereas Jesus is the one true God. And so you have this choice that is demanded of them. And the people, like you even read in Romans 1, where it's similar language is, is being written by Paul to the people in Rome itself. They're trying to worship Jesus in Rome itself under the shadow of the Roman Empire's palaces. And they're trying to live that out right there. And he's saying, Jesus is the only one. And so you're forced to make that choice. Do you follow the gospel of Caesar or the gospel of Jesus? And what seemed, what's so interesting is, so Jesus is born into this. He lives under this, and then he dies by the cross, which was the symbol, right, which was, I mean, which was the tool of execution by the Roman Empire. And so it would seem in that moment that the Roman Empire has won, that Caesar has defeated Jesus. But what we all know is that that's not the end of the story. And through the resurrection, we see that the cross, which was that tool of the power of the Roman Empire to kill those who opposed them, is now the symbol of Jesus being alive and being powerful and that he has defeated not only, not just Rome, but of sin and death. And you know what's so cool too is, check this out, a couple pictures I want you to see is a picture here of the Colosseum. It's the Colosseum in Rome, this place where Christians were killed or the gladiatorial games were played where they say that they are gods within this place. And now they're over one of the gates. You can see there a cross over the gate of this, you know, Roman Empire is a symbol of Jesus. But even better is when you go inside, that's the spot that the emperor would sit. And now on that spot the emperor would sit is a cross that, you know, how could, the, you know, you ever think that Rome would win? That, that Rome, this place where he would say, I am a God and just kill the Christians, is now a place where a symbol of Jesus stands. And I think that's amazing. That this, this Colosseum is now a relic of the past. And Jesus reigns as king. And his kingdom will have no end. His kingdom will have no end. And so we see this amazing, amazing victory in the, you know, in the midst of something that felt like it would be great defeat of that cross is this symbol of defeat. And so we need to then now begin to, to learn to look to Jesus for our hope, not, our, not earthly kings. Because I want Caesar to represent for us the way that we could tend to look to an earthly king for hope Instead of looking to Jesus for that hope. And we can have an earthly expectation of what we want to, to happen in our world, you know, that we think we want even Jesus to do, versus this eternal significance 
that, that Jesus might have in mind that's different than what we think. And so we need to look to Jesus for our hope. And I like the way even that Jesus uh, represents this. Like even what he does. There's a story where Jesus uh, is asked by some people who are trying to trick him and trap him. And they're asking him about taxes and if we should pay taxes. And so Jesus in sort of Jesus style asked them to go get him a fish. And, they, and they're like, okay, what? You know, but I think they've just sort of at that point, okay, fine, Jesus, whatever. You, you do weird things and we just say, okay, at this point. But he, grab, he gets this fish and he pulls out of its mouth a coin. <laughs> and he has this coin and he says to them, you know, he's, he's like, look at the coin. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, because on that coin was an inscription of Caesar. It was a picture of Caesar. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And there's a couple implications to that that I want you to recognize and understand. The first thing that he's doing there, it's kind of a radical moment that seems like a cutesy moment, but it's a pretty radical moment. Because what he's saying there is, he's saying... Give to Caesar what Caesar's, give to God what's God's. What he's saying is, Caesar is not God. Okay? Give, to, give, give that guy the money. He's not God. Give to God what's God's. Because the second implication is that you belong to God. He's telling them, look, remember, you are an image bearer. You bear the very image of God upon you. You are not inscribed with a picture of Caesar. You are inscribed with a picture of God. And so we as image bearers, we give ourselves to God. Fine, he says, give Caesar the money. Money's nothing, you know? But you are precious, and so give yourselves to God. And so it's this kind of radical, revolutionary statement in some way, but it's done in a Jesus way that is, you know, it's kind of a flipping things upside down and turning things around. And so within that, we have to then realize that we do not need to place our hope in the rulers of this world. Who will that be? Who will be the leader of our country? Who are leaders in our world? Who are the earthly leaders around us? Whatever that might be. We also don't need to place our fear in the leaders of this world, okay? They were afraid and terrified of Caesar. We don't place our hope or our fear in the leaders of this world. We place our hopes and our awe-like fear in God and God alone. And the thing was, is this whole earthly expectation versus eternal significance, they thought, right, they all thought that this Messiah was going to come and was going to lead military force against the Roman Empire. And if you read, I mean, really, like, if you read the, the prophecies of the Messiah and you put that as your mindset of kind of what you're wanting it to be, it's pretty easy to get there. You know, I, I, in some ways I don't blame them or I can understand how they would get there. As they're reading all these prophecies of this great deliverer, you know, their deliverers in the past have, have helped to deliver them in that kind of physical, material, uh, military type sense. And they want to be delivered and they want the Messiah to deliver them from the, their occupier. I mean, their nation is occupied by the Roman Empire who's brought in their false gods, who's brought, you know, all of this uh, blasphemy against God. And they think, yeah, that's what God wants to do. God wants to take them out. And, and so they expect that and they think that's coming. And then Jesus comes 
and has just a totally different thing that he's bringing. He's, like, he's not bringing military force. He's not bringing any of that. He, you know, they had this earthly expectation of that, but he brings eternal significance. That's so much more, but it's hard for them to recognize. And then what Jesus does, he doesn't establish an army. He establishes the church. <laughs> he establishes people that are supposed to bring a message of love and grace and forgiveness and to share the gospel of Jesus with the world. And that's going to be radical and that's going to be hard and you might get killed for it. But that's what they were called to do. You know, he says things like, love your enemies. And they're like, whoa, whoa, wait, no, 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 no. We want to kill them, you know? What do you mean love them? We want to take them out. We thought you were going to help us with this. But he, he, you know, he's inviting them into something bigger. He's inviting them to be part of this church that, that we are. We are the church. You are the church, and we are together in this, and we invite you to be a part of this community, this family that wants to share and express that love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus to a hurting and broken world, a world that is weary and in sin and in error. And so we want to bring that hope to the world, and we hope that you would find that here amongst this family, but we hope that you ultimately find that in Christ and Jesus alone. And so in the midst of all of that, I, I just want to ask even, you know, how much, how much do you place your trust in those earthly leaders? And maybe even a way to assess that is how much, you know, news or politics do you watch, read, consume, and get worried about versus how much of God's word and prayer and Jesus do you watch, read, and are, you know, concerned with? And it's okay to care about that stuff. That's all I'm saying. It's like, you know, we can care about that stuff. We can be involved in it. We can have our lives be very involved with it. But are we placing our hopes and fears in that or are we placing it in Christ? We have to check that in ourselves of what we are placing our faith in. Is your intent to deal with the Caesar problem or to place your trust in Christ. Because when we think about Caesar, you got to put your, your heads in the minds of these people, right? Back then in the first century. This is a—he's evil. He's the enemy. This person has come against you and has occupied you. And you think, yes, Jesus, help us take him out. That's what they wanted to do. That's what the zealots were about. There was this group of people called the zealots in the time of Christ— there's different uh, groups of people, Pharisees, Sadducees. You've got uh, just regular people, and then you've got zealots. And these zealots were those who really were getting ready for the Messiah to come. That the Messiah was going to come and lead them. And they were already doing sort of like guerrilla tactics, guerrilla warfare tactics, and going against uh, the emperor they'd even seen in the past. Like the whole Hanukkah story, that, that whole thing is about the people of Israel taking out a emperor who came in and occupied their land. Let's do that again. But the Messiah is going to come. Messiah is going to help us. Okay, and we're going to take out this evil emperor. And we want to get him. And we think in our world today, you know, when those forces go against God, we want to get rid of them. And so the ways, you know, you think of uh, the ways of the, the zealots and the ways that we get kind of in our even, you know, good old American way, we want to take them out. We want to say no. We want to just crush Caesar. We want to smash him to the ground, and it feels good. 
I'll be honest, it feels really good. And, you know, we even think, it's my good old Trinity bat. <laughs> we think that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to just keep smashing him into smithereens and just take him out. And that's the symbol of Jesus over Caesar. That's what we want that symbol to be. And that's what gets us kind of fired up, right? When we think about smashing Caesar down, smashing the leaders of this world that go against God now down. And Jesus says, whoa, (laughs) relax. (laughs) Remember that loud, aggressive, violent reaction That's a reaction of your flesh. I came and I showed you something different. I came as a baby in a feeding trough to a poor little girl out of wedlock. And guess what? I got this. (laughs) You don't. (laughs) Jesus says, "I'll, I'll take care of this. And I'll do this in my way. I'll do this in my style. Jesus was quiet and peaceful, humble, yet powerful, self-sacrificing, giving up of the rights of ourselves for the good of another. The way of Jesus is costly. It takes a lot longer than that. But it's worth it. So worth it. Great worth, great value. If Jesus was only an earthly savior, if he came to defeat Caesar, how small is that? Right? Like how little, how limiting is that? When we place that expectation, that earthly expectation upon him, that's so small. He's like, you want me to beat Caesar? What's the point? Like, are you serious? I came to defeat sin and death and to bring forgiveness and grace for the world. I'm about so much more than that little thing that you care about. And so we have these things that we care about or we think we want God to do. And they're so small. And Jesus says, I want to bring you something more. I want to bring you love and grace and forgiveness and a sense of eternity. I want to give you a perspective that's so much bigger. So don't put them in a little box of our earthly expectations. It's so easy to have a zealot mindset and hard to have a a mindset of a disciple or, or the mindset of Jesus. And so we're to respond like Christ where we want that aggressive action, but he says, trust me, trust me, humbly trust me. And it's just, it's so crazy how it's so easy for us to have that wrong mindset, just as easy as it was for those zealots back then. You know, we think we know what God wants, and yet we keep putting our expectations on him. I think what's another interesting thing in this is that Christianity— thrived under Caesar. You know, Jesus, the message of Christ spread rapidly under an emperor (laughs) who wanted to kill all the Christians, you know, and yet the message just kept spreading and kept going. And in all these cities throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, you just see church after church spreading in places that have temples to the emperor built in those towns. And yet the message of Christ is going and going and going. You know when it started getting all twisted and messed up? It's when the government, when the state started getting involved. You know, and when they started like 
making it official, <laughs> and Constantine and beyond and all of that, that's where you see stuff start to get twisted and messed up. And I think for us, we can so badly want our, our world and our country, let's say, even to be Christian and sort of officially Christian, yet oftentimes when it does, that's when it gets the most messed up. And the message gets twisted because we have to remember that Jesus cares about the eternal significance and not our earthly expectation. So let us not place our hope, trust, and fear in the leaders of this world who sit on the thrones of our day. But place our hope and trust in Jesus alone and live in that way. I, honestly, I have said this before. And whether you might totally disagree, but I'm kind of excited if our country is not a Christian nation. <laughs> you know? Because I think then we actually have to live like Christians in a world that goes against him. And I think we will see it spread like wildfire. And that's, I hope that you can get about that. It's about the eternal even more. It's about all of that. That we would spread the eternal significance of Jesus. Because his kingdom will have no end. Every nation, every kingdom of this world has an end. His kingdom will have no end. And so we need to take that eternal significance to a world that is broken and hurting and weary and in sin and in living lives of error. And you think of the song, right? You think of the song, Holy Night. We're going to sing it. But it says, Long lay the world in sin and error. And it still does. Our world is full of sin and error. They're just getting it wrong, right? But at the same time, it says, in sin and error, pining, because they, there's something more that they don't have and they don't know. They don't know they don't have it, but they're pining for it. And then when Jesus appears, our soul can feel the worth of that, right? Our soul feels the worth of Christ when we are in that sin and error. And there is then this thrill of hope as a world that is weary will rejoice and will sing and will praise and worship Jesus. Because through Jesus and Jesus alone, there is a new beginning, a new and glorious morn. Because we are now new creations. The old has passed away. You in Christ are now a new creation. And so I implore you, if you are here today and you have not yet surrendered your life, your faith and trust, and placed that in Jesus and Jesus alone, I encourage you to do that today. We'd love to pray with you after the service at these prayer points, but we want to be able to pray with you that you would then surrender your life to Christ and not to the things of this world. And maybe you need to examine, all of us, I need to examine my life of how I can place my hope and trust in the leaders of this world instead of in Christ. Because as we place our hope in Christ alone, we're going to be about the eternal significance so much more than what our earthly expectations are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus. Lord, and thank you for doing things in your way, Lord Jesus, that are, that are really hard for us, though, Lord. But they show us who you are in such a greater way, where you... You're always turning it upside down on what we would expect should happen. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be able to place our hope in you. Lord, I pray that when, when we are tempted to place our hopes and fears in the rulers of this world, that we would turn from that. 
we would repent of that and follow you and you alone, Lord. And I pray that your gospel would spread like wildfire, wildfire in our nation as our nation turns away from you. May your word spread, God, and may people's lives be changed for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>